Leading Matters with Joel Caparelli. Welcome back to Leading Matters and listen. I do it every time. I when I hit record, I'm like, I am not gonna say how, how excited I am about this podcast, but I can't help myself. I'm talking to Kevin the Count today, and Kevin is the uh, chief employee engagement officer at uh, Nacal. Actually, you know, I got that wrong. His title is, and I want to make sure I get it right. Kevin's title is the head of employee engagement at Tiny Pulse. And Tiny Pulse is a really interesting company. They do these, um, what's called pulse surveys, where they'll ask employees uh, one question a week to kind of gain gauge the pulse of what's going on in the in the company. Their uh, CEO is is very passionate about um, you know values and mission and purpose, and he built the app based upon that passion. And they're successful. It's kind of a crowded marketplace, so we get into that a little bit with Kevin, but. Listen, this is one I want you to listen to because Kevin's undergraduate degree is in philosophy, and he talks about how that is actually more valuable to him than his Harvard MBA, believe it or not, because of some of the nuance that a classically trained liberal arts degree bring into the marketplace, into the workforce. And and indeed, that motivates him to uh, join Tiny Pulse a couple years ago and to drive their success. So we get into a lot of topics about uh, the difference between values and culture versus uh, personality fits and whether any personality can align to a culture. He talks about the, the category of HR solutions that are needed today. He talks about the successful uh, hiring processes that inject a um, an analysis of cultural fit and and on and on and on so listen you will not be disappointed do me a favor save this one you know file it away and promise yourself that you listen to it because i know that you're going to gain some value out of this interview with kevin nacow the head of employee engagement at tiny pulse so today i am joined uh, by kevin nacow and kevin is the head of employee engagement at tiny pulse and tiny pulse if you've not heard of them is definitely a company that you want to check out they have a very clear mission and they believe that people are the most important asset to any company and that keeping your folks happy is something that we have to make a high priority for so it's really as critical as any other part of the business and they make solutions to help you keep your your employees happy now kevin's got a a very interesting background he was the founder uh, of uh, metashare and music blitz and both were successfully required He's had success in the mobile area as well with the uh, two top 10 iOS and Android apps with over 25 million downloads. And really, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have him with me today because some of the things that he's doing and saying and the Tiny Pulse are doing really align well with what we talk about here on Leading Matters. So first things first, Kevin, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining me today. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate your time and uh, allowing us to share what we're learning at Tiny Pulse with your audience and um, getting feedback as well. Very good. So listen, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. Now listen, I know you you did your MBA at, at Harvard, but I found it more interesting when I was kind of looking you up and researching for preparation for our call that you have your undergraduate degree in philosophy. So I want to start right there because uh, you're not alone in this area where people have more of a, a liberally art-trained uh, course of study, especially in their undergraduate days. And I'm finding that a lot of leaders today are finding that uh, even more valuable than ever before. Can can you do you agree with that first of all? And if you do, can you kind of expand on why we're finding uh, that to be more valuable in business applications than ever before? Yeah, absolutely. I believe more strongly than ever that my undergraduate degree in liberal arts uh, training has been much more valuable than my MBA. Um, 
And it's funny because the reason I actually uh, pursued a liberal arts degree was for education in and of itself. And I know that sounds kind of a lo- like a luxury, but uh, for my family and my family history, it was really important. I was the first person to graduate from college, and there was just a premium on that. And my, my mother was intellectually curious. She was an avid reader, and I think she instilled a lot of that um, thirst for knowledge within me. So I, when I went to college, I really wanted to... Uh, really focus on that. Now, I knew that um, I had to get a job at some point, but I almost kind of looked at that separately. So uh, I had jobs and internships through college, and that was kind of my path to becoming employed. And I just kind of treated education separately as as a goal uh, in and of itself. But what happened is, I think studying philosophy really helped me uh, understand how to think, how to learn better, uh, and how to look at situations, and it was it was more by accident and by design. So, for example, one of the courses you take in philosophy is logic or rhetoric, and when you look at some of the rules of rhetoric, um, they totally apply to things like marketing. So, for example, one of the rules of rhetoric is to argue and to convince people based on the fact that other people are doing it. Uh, you can see that in marketing day. Everybody should do this because everybody else is doing it. Or there's another uh, rule of rhetoric around authority. So you should do this because this expert in employee engagement, Josh Burson, says this is what you should be doing. So there were a lot of um, practical implications that I, I still use today. And, and I think um, to your point as to why it's becoming re- relevant is that because the world is changing so quickly. I mean, you look at a company like Nokia and how quickly and how fast it went from a dominant position to to really nothing today. And so companies that are uh, achieving greatness are, are falling uh, much faster, quicker. And because the pace of change is quicker, you need to learn, you need to learn to think quicker. And that's why I think more generalized training in the liberal arts can be helpful as to, as opposed to like really specific training in kind of more practical things. So it's not for everybody. I would say, you know, you should pursue the educational bent that you get the most passionate about. That's what really matters. And then also kind of treat your career path separately. Think of the things you need to do to to get that job or have that career that you want. But I just think there's a tremendous value in education in and of itself and being passionate about that end. Well, you know, I, I really like that description. You know, I had Scott Monty. I'm not sure if you know Scott. He was the former digital director at uh, Ford Motor Companies. And, and he, he thinks very similarly. As a matter of fact, he's very classically trained as well. And he's a big fan of Cicero, and he injects that into his work and what he's doing. And, it, and, and the reason I bring that up is because it seems, especially after you explain that, it seems like you being a tiny pulse, especially with the direction that this category of solution is headed, seems like a really solid fit. I mean, am I reading into that too much, or did you arrive? there seeing that, that David and what Tony Pulse had created was something to, to really grab a hold on and support to, you know, not to be too, too uh, you know, exaggerated too much, but really make the world a better place by helping us to communicate with our workforce a little bit more clearly. Yeah, that's very helpful. And then we study values a lot, how you arrive at them, how you reinforce them, and how you kind of take these ideals and apply it in the real world and see the benefits of, um, of that application. So let's talk about the, the solution then itself. And, 
and the, the category that you're in, uh, that Tiny Pulse is in, it, and it seems to me, and again, this is kind of me speculating, you know, having been in software for a number of years, but it seems almost like a new frontier of software as a service where HR is applied. Whereas in the late 90s and the early thousands, you know, HR was all about the operational capabilities and the tactical necessities of just having a workforce. But now that solution gap seems to be, listen, we know how to tactically manage the details of a workforce, but what about the people themselves and the impact that people have to our ability to grow our market share, to connect better with our customers, and to indeed you know, deliver on what we're trying to do within the marketplace? Do I have that right? I'm kind of curious as to what you think about that. Yeah, I think we've gone through a very interesting evolution. I mean, starting from the unions, HR was about compliance, uh, staying within the rules with both unions and whatever labor laws there have been, to being about payroll and hiring, and now more recently about uh, employee engagement. And I think, um, like, I think he's on, going to be on your show, but one of my favorite um, experts on this topic is Dan Pink. And one of the things that Dan has shown the world in a very popular way is the fact that money is not necessarily what motivates and drives people to do their best work. In fact, he's shown that there can be a reverse incentive. So I think that meant that HR had to start thinking about engaging employees not just based on the cost of living increases they get in their compensation, but on some of these other factors. So I think that's been a huge shift in terms of what HR teams uh, focus on. Do you think, as far as practitioners in this space are concerned, do you think that the adoption rate of some of the things that you're doing and, and indeed some of your competitors and others in the space will really kind of push this solution equation out even further in the next, say, five to ten years? I do, and I think, um, you know, being in HR is a really challenging place to be. Um, it's tough because, uh, and I've had HR people work for me, you know, in, in many cases you are, uh, you have all the best intents of doing things um, that are great for employees, but it backfires a lot of times. Or you may launch programs that aren't not, uh, successful. So it's funny, on the, on the product side, on the marketing side, we allow our leaders to fail, and we want we encourage them to do, do that. I mean, that's the only way you innovate and learn. But when you think about it on the HR side, how many people are really giving permission to their HR teams to fail? We don't because, you know, we expect HR to be perfect. So. I think innovation is, is kind of tough. Some of them want to innovate, but they may not have the support of the organization to do that. So what's happening to really counteract this is now a lot of software services um, is adopted by just end users. So if you look at what's happened with Slack or Yammer or Dropbox, those were all software services that were brought in by end users and grew organically within companies. And I'm seeing the same thing happen with um, Tiny Pulse and employee engagement. If a company sets things up right like we have, uh, any employee can kind of start a program at work. And that helps out HR because they can um, kind of prove that it works with a group of people, and then it just kind of um, gets adopted throughout the organization. So I think the deployment model has changed uh, in HR software from being really top-down decisions to be uh, becoming more organic and ground up. Do you, th do you think, uh, Kevin, in larger organizations that leadership is receptive to this sort of change? I mean, especially where, uh, you know, things in the HR realm are concerned, and if you think, look at public companies and the level of compliance that they do need to, you know, certainly care about, I mean, is, is, there, is there a resistance to this sort of, of adoption from the bottom up? 
it's actually helpful to them. So I, I've kind of been on the other side. I've uh, been the president and CEO of companies. And one of the toughest things to do is to launch something that um, you think uh, employees will enjoy and then just have it absolutely fail. So when you see programs like Tinyfold start with your employees first, uh, you know you're launching something where the success has been proven. In fact, I work with a lot of companies. One of the things I recommend for them is, like, if you're a large company, don't do an enterprise-wide rollout. Start with a pilot test, run it in a couple divisions, build organic support, get the rest of your leaders to ask for this rather than tell those leaders to adopt it. And uh, we've seen that happen in many cases. Uh, a good example is HubSpot in Boston. Tiny Pulse uh, was first started at their engineering office in Dublin, and it just grew organically so that now uh, all, their whole company is using it, but it just grew department by department. Now, that's interesting. That's a really good example, too. And then as far as, you know, such, talk about a satellite office. It doesn't get much more satellite from Boston to Dublin than that, right? So, listen, let me – I want to shift gears a little bit and actually talk about – how Tiny Pulse is running its business as far as, as culture, value, and missions are concerned. Because, you know, I've seen your CEO, David, speak before, um, and, and he's obviously very passionate about it. The company's kind of born out of his experiences and what he is hoping to bring into the marketplace. But, you know, th- these ideas of vision and mission and value, they're critical, but then nurturing them and how we kind of measure them on a day-to-day basis and the metrics we, we keep and, and what impacts those and those changes that we make. I mean, that, that's a tall task for a lot of companies sometimes, especially as they start to grow, right? As I see, you know, I see this happen a lot when, when companies start to exceed the 20, 30, 40, 50 employees and their hierarchy starts to just crystallize because out of necessity, they, they find it difficult to go back and manage those things that they thought at one time were so important to them. I'm curious, especially since Tiny Pulse has had a, a pretty good amount of growth in the past several years, you know, how, how do you guys do this? How do you kind of manage that to stay true to the, the vision, the missions, and the values? Uh, well, from the very start, one of the ways that we uh, reinforce our values is we publish them on our website. And uh, you can see them there. And one of the things that we do in every job description that we post is we list those values. And before we hire anybody or interview them for any position that's out there, uh, we ask the candidate to comment on where they've exhibited at least two of those values in a work scenario. Now, if they're still in college, um, they can use an example of an organization they're part of or working with friends. But... um, that's kind of the starting point, and that's your first impression, and so that's uh, where we start with values. Um, now, once you join the company in our onboarding, um, our CEO and founder, David, uh, does a review of our values, the vision and mission. And then the, finally, the other way that we reinforce it is part of Tiny Pulse has this peer recognition program called Cheers to Pe- Peers, and people send cheers every week, and we have a meeting every two weeks where we review the Tiny Pulse feedback, and we pick cheers that are given based on the values that we pick for that week. So uh, one of our values is to elect positivity, and so that may be the theme for that week. Or the next week it could be uh, lead with solutions, and so we'll pick some of the peer recognition things that relate to that value. and. Having an employee do that, it's on the leadership team. We assign two employees each week. So having employees actually think about what the values are and where there was a great instance of it really helps reinforce that. 
So, you know, I'm glad I asked the question. I asked that's a kind of a common question that I ask about as far as bringing culture and value into the talent acquisition process. And you clearly demonstrate, uh, you know, just in your reply there that you certainly do that. Now, my, my question becomes is, is how, I guess, should all organizations take this step as far as, listen, we are going to make you know, cultural evaluation or alignment part of our talent acquisition process? I mean, it seems, is it a no-brainer? Should we be doing that? And if we, if we should, like, and I don't know where to start, where should I start? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's been proven that companies that are focused on values, uh, higher results, higher long-term performance, um, the whole kind of notion and book around Collins wrote about built to last showed the importance of, of kind of having that vision. So um, there's just tons of benefits. Also, when we're moving to a world where you want to empower people to be able to move fast and make decisions, values kind of provide those rules of engagement. Um, and so if you have a difficult decision and you optimize towards values, I think that um, gives comfort to people in terms of delegating decisions and that helps uh, better decisions get made. So then the first thing you probably think about is, how do I choose my values? And there's a great exercise that David uses um, that's also related to a great exercise that one of the uh, Collins authors wrote about, um, which they call the mission to Mars. And um, in that mission, what you do is you think, well, if if there's a new outpost for uh, your company in Mars, Uh, Who from your company would you send and why? And so you kind of make that list, and then you start to think about, well, why are those people so valuable? And a lot of times you'll say, well, this person I'd send because they're tenacious and they're persistent and they never give up. Or I'd send this person because um, they're very thoughtful and they think through things. Or this person's a really good communicator. And it's a great way for bringing your values to life and kind of understanding the things that are important to you and uh, I've been at a company where um, we've done that, and we were able to figure out our values in, in pretty much one day, and then we could spend more time focusing on educating and getting everybody used to those values. That's a really uh, excellent example, right? Because I, I, that's why I ask where do you start, because I think, you know, a matter of fact, again, again I, I've seen some of uh, David's uh, presentations, and he talks about, he doesn't call it this, but he, he kind of talks about an accidental culture. In other words, you're going to have a culture one way or the other. It will be part of your company, and it will represent who you are. And if you don't, I think he uses the analogy of like a garden. If you don't tend to it, then the garden gets overgrown, and the weeds come in, and pretty short, pretty soon you have this accidental culture, which you never really wanted on your hands. I mean, is, is tending the tiny pulse garden... You know, beyond just the talent acquisition process, but actually through the entire uh, employment life cycle for your employees, something that you do on an active uh, basis. Oh yeah, um, and every every uh, three months we have a quarterly review, and that David shares his vision, uh, which is pretty important, and it's a statement he wrote over three or four years ago that kind of talks about different uh, milestones at different years and where he expects us to be and what things are like and. You know, we don't always kind of line up to what was predicted, but it's really fun to see that type of vision and how how we're doing against that. Now, when we start to try to – getting back to the talent acquisition process, right, I'm curious about if, if a workforce that's too homogenous, right – is risky if we start to force everybody into one perspective of what our culture means. I mean, is that a, is that a risk? Number one, and if it is, how do we kind of avoid that? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because there's some really important nuances when you talk about culture and values. I believe that values are aspirational goals that anybody can adhere to no matter the personality type. Uh, now, we have all different types of um, personality types. Some people are more introverted. Some people are more extroverted. I know a ton of people that are very, very positive. They're not necessarily outgoing, but they're the kind of strong, silent types. They they believe you can get something done. Um, they're very positive about how they're going to do it. They're just not really vocal about it. So I think one of the things in having a really good culture is to know how different personality types can really express those core values, and not everybody's the same. And uh, we see this a lot around values like positivity or how people relate. And I think that's one of the nice things about some of the social tools that we're starting to see in the enterprise, like Yammer or Slack. And what I've noticed is there are very many, a lot of people who may not be so extroverted in public, but you get them on like an internet, like Slack or, or a chatter tool, and they're all over the place. So uh, I think that's really important, and I think it's important to hire people from different personality types that believe in the basic same principles and values um, that we do. I mean, look in America, we all believe in the principle of democracy, but we have a a ton of different personalities about how we think what the best recipe for that is and how and the things that we like to do. And I think that's important for company culture, too. So is there ever a time where we would take a risk on cultural fit? Like, in other words, let's suppose we had, you know, the absolute best person, you know, guy or gal at whatever they did, and we needed them, right? It was a, it was a gap in our organization. They had the skills and the talent to do it, but maybe they weren't 100% aligned with, with adopting. Maybe they were a really negative person, if you look at Tiny Pulse, but you know what? They were going to hit it out of the park on the, on the, uh, tat, on the, you know, the strategic and the tactical execution. I mean, do you ever take that risk? And if so, how do I know when, when I should take it, or even if I'm going to take it, how to evaluate whether it's working or not? Yeah, I would say if you know for sure you're taking a risk and the person can't live up to your values, you should never, ever, ever do it. And the reason for that is even with the people that are a great cultural fit, we're not perfect, right? It's like any any organization with ideals. I mean, I elect to be positive. I try to lead with solutions. But I may not be able to practice that every day, and it's not necessarily by intent, but just by what happens in practice. So... If you start with somebody that doesn't truly believe in those, it just lowers the bar so much uh, on something that's really hard to apply in the first place. So I think if you've got a known risk, it's it's not worth it, and uh, it really undermines uh, what you're trying to do. And if you, you know, look at any great um, movement or mission, the practitioners of that um, really are an important face of that, and so. Um, when you do that, I think you're really kind of risking your own uh, credibility around those values and how much weight you're putting on those. Well, that's that's good. That's interesting, too, because I know it's a big balancing act, again, especially for companies that are trying to get their feet under them as far as purpose and mission goes. You know, purpose is becoming more and more important for who we hire, uh, and as they try to get their legs under them there, sometimes they're, they're more willing to force a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. But listen, let me ask you one more question before we wrap here up here, Kevin, and, and that's around the annual review process, right? Because we've talked a little bit about the onboarding. We talked about the talent acquisition process. But, you know, employees are around for a while, right? And one 
of your value props is that you're going to reduce turnover by, you know, I forget the percentage that you, you talk about, but, you know, it's it's expensive to get people in and to get them trained and to nurture them for the first, you know, couple months that they're with us. And if they take up and leave after the first six months and we're out a lot of money, right? And they haven't made any kind of positive impact to our organization. So how do we, and, and again, there's also a lot of frustration around this, this annual review process, right? Where employees want the feedback, they want to be continuously learning, they want to improve their performance yet this we have this archaic annual review process that waits until the end of the year that gives them maybe stale you know static kind of HR speak feedback now I know that's one of the things you guys are trying to address but just talk to me about that and and, and kind of what you see working and where the real ahas have been as far as the, the daily or the weekly questions that tiny pulses enables yeah so we first started out um, just helping companies with feedback they were doing no uh, employee feedback process or they were doing an annual one. And what they found that it was um, too much information too late and nobody could do anything about it. And employees felt dissatisfied because they were providing all this feedback and not much was done about it. So we kind of flipped it on its head and, you know, rather asking uh, 50 questions once a year, we asked a question a week. And that really helps get you feedback that you can act on quicker and identify a lot of problems uh, before they become really, really big ones. Um, so it helps a number of companies do that. And, you know, for the same reason, uh, good companies, they measure their key metrics on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis from revenues to costs to expenses. I think you want to do the same thing with employees and, and, and provide that. Same thing goes for recognition. It's great that companies do uh, awards at the end of the year, but it's also really good to give feedback um, throughout the year through peer recognition. And uh, what's happened, too, is we had a lot of our customers say, well, this is great. You've helped us with employee engagement in these surveys. Is there anything you can do with our annual um, review process? Nobody wants to do it. It's not effective. It's too much, too late. And so we're definitely looking at some areas where we can really help companies um, resolve the pain that they're feeling around that. Well, great. That's I, I really, I'm glad to hear that because I think that's definitely an area where companies of all sizes can can gain value from uh, doing what you guys do. So listen, I'm going to wrap it up there. And we've been speaking again with uh, Kevin Nacal. Kevin is the head of employee engagement at Tiny Pulse. And again, I, I would encourage you to check Tiny Pulse out. It's at tinypulse.com. And what they're doing is really elevating the importance and the priority of keeping your employees happy, not in a not in a placard on the wall sort of way, but in a genuine, um, you know, life-changing way that makes people thrilled to show up to their workplace and uh, find purpose in what they do. So, Kevin, listen, I, again, I said it at the beginning. I'll say it again. I really like and love what you're doing. So, uh, even more thrilled to have you come on and, and share your insights. So, thank you so much for taking. Your time out to help us understand some of these issues yeah and thank you and thank you to anybody that's listening